Welcome to the sauce. A little bit spicy. Sometimes a little bit sweet. You never know what bottle you're going to get. <laughs> but it is something you can never have enough of. I'm Vicky. I cook. She drinks. She is me. I'm Tash. I drink. And Vicky cooks. And we both talk a lot about food. <laughs> Vicky runs Nourish Magazine, New Zealand's most read food publication. Really, it's the highest numbers. And Tash is the New Zealand's leading drinks writer, plus a whole swag more. <laughs> Pies, let me put my fingers in them. Together we run the feed and bring you the source, relevant fresh bites and takes on what's worth eating and drinking in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We all know that I cook and she drinks, but actually sometimes I drink <laughs> and I cook <laughs> at the same time. Regularly. <laughs> okay, so what have you been what have you been drinking? Well, actually sometimes I wish I was just cooking. Because I was recently doing a story on the latest edition of Nourish on balsamic vinegar. So vinegar that probably mm. wouldn't have been in our pantries forty years ago that is now commonplace. Mm, delicious. So I wanted to find out a bit more about what this balsamic vinegar really was and the difference between the $5 version and the $500 version. Okay, colour me intrigued. So, um, yeah, basically a whole lot of rules and regulations from the EU, which uh, usually okay. makes it expensive. Mm. Um, but some validity there and some some real reasons between buying a good balsamic vinegar versus buying that caramel water wine kind of thing. Yes. Um, so anyway, read the latest edition of Nourish and find out which balsamic mm-hmm. vinegar you should be spending your money on um but so started cooking and playing around doing a little deep dive and found out that lo and behold a tiktok trend passed me by tash oh, color me surprised <laughs> for all the time you spend on tiktok Vicky. Um, how did you discover this tiktok trend that passed you by i may have been reading an article written by a boomer about a tiktok trend <laughs> okay yeah, yeah, wait, wait, wait. so you to find out about the tiktok trend maybe you like you read an article to, to yeah. what what was the trend Well, the trend apparently is you can make, wait for it, Mm -hmm. you probably already know it and tried it and discarded it, but anyway, for those of you like myself, who this TikTok trend even missed Facebook and Instagram, um, you can put a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar with some soda water and lo and behold, you have a healthy Coca-Cola substitute. (laughs) No? Okay. Okay, so so what we're saying now is that about a year after the trend, you read an article about the, yeah, okay, and did you try it? Yeah, with my mouth already puckered up going, why? And I don't think it's going to pass by the eight-year-old. And how did it go? Yeah, I'd prefer to te- to just drink the tablespoon of balsamic vinegar and the glass of soda water separately. Okay, but did you use the did you use the good balsamic vinegar or the cheap balsamic vinegar? Because I think the amount of added caramel makes a huge difference. Oh, so I'm supposed to use the cheap one. Oh, there goes my problem. I thought if I was cheating with the Coca-Cola, I would upspec yeah. and use the expensive balsamic no, no, vinegar. I think you actually just drink vinegar as opposed to caramel sweetening, which is what happens if you use the cheap one. <laughs> Probably should have read the room, and if it was a TikTok <laughs> trend, chances are they just bought cheap balsamic, fake balsamic vinegar. 
Okay. Well, we're making fake Coke, so you may as well have fake balsamic vinegar. I just have to let you know that I, in fact, did let that trend pass me by. I did not even think once about trying it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, that's me and TikTok gone. Okay. okay. Oh, look, it was a good short-lived innings via a print edition of a magazine somewhere. <laughs> so that's me, what I've been eating and drinking. Uh-huh. What have you been eating and drinking? Well, let's be honest, summer is kind of on the way, you know, still holding out hope that we're going to have a, a, a big a big summer full of sunshine. And that for me means it is dill pickle season. Um, if you know anything about me, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of Alison Roman. Oh, I thought you were going to say um, the pickle. I am. <laughs> a, well, I'm a huge fan of Alison Roman, who is a huge fan of dill. And I, in fact, have named my dill plant Alison Roman. Oh. Uh, and I am a huge fan of pickles. Uh, I have many pickles of many different varieties. Um, spicy, sweet, sweet, spicy, bread and butter, um, sometimes whole pickles, sometimes sliced, sometimes sandwich slices, sometimes... So you know, when you're saying pickle, you're very much talking about the American cucumber-based pickle, not a not a pickle like a chutney pickle. <coughs> Excuse me. No, sometimes I do have I do have a range of then also like sweet gherkin relish, uh, piccalilli. I have cauliflower and curry, like the curried mm-hmm. pickle. I do have a range of those also. Okay, yeah. There is a reason so why you're then... literally always in a pickle. <laughs> I am sorry. Always... <laughs> we were talking about dad jokes. They just we opened a door. I can't. I am. I it? am always in a pickle. One of my favorite in a pickle stories actually is when I messaged my mother and asked her for her like our family famous family recipe of pickles, which I thought came from like a grandmother or a, you know whatever. And she said the Edmonds. No, no. Even worse, she sent me a photo of a cut-out magazine page with no byline, no author, but clearly somewhere from maybe the nineties. Uh, and that's that's the family pickle recipe. Okay. Uh, yeah. Apparently, she discovered that um, and decided it was better than her original recipe. So the family recipe gone to the ether and nameless recipe writer thank you for your service because those bread and butter pickles are in fact my favorite recipe um but yeah huge fan of pickles so i've been eating a lot of those recently um and you know the other thing that uh that pickles go really well with i'm gonna say some sort of not skillet meatloaf Uh, but I think we ruled that one out. You gotta let it go. Um, the meatloaf is great. <laughs> the skillet meatloaf is great. I'm gonna do a cook along and invite you to oh, it just so you yeah. can see how great it is. I'm gonna say some sort of cocktail so you can get pickled in two ways. Ooh, I like what you did there. In fact, yes. So the Bloody Mary. What's the number one issue with the Bloody Mary for me though? Um it's that I'm allergic to raw tomato. I was gonna and say the tomato juice would do it in for me as well. Well, I, there's a great competition that had been running um, to create a Jason Momoa. We'll go to a bit of a backstory here. Jason Momoa, the one, the only, basically we've adopted him as a New Zealander. Uh, he has, uh, with, uh, with a good friend of his, released a vodka. It's a grain-based vodka. Um, it's made in Bozeman, Montana, uh, where I actually have some friends who live. And I can, you know, quantify, yes, it is absolutely pristine water, beautiful grain. And the vodka itself is called Meili Vodka. It's really really lovely um, and to kind of celebrate the launch of it here in New Zealand um, and the fact that the wine that the distributor um, Angie Atkinson is a huge fan of the Bloody Mary cocktail um, they've been running a competition to create 
Mm-hmm. A bloody Momoa, uh, the Jason Momoa vision of a Bloody Mary. And to be fair, I could not resist the opportunity to participate in this. So I have been, along with my dill pickles, perfecting my version of a Bloody Momoa. Minus the tomato juice. Well, so here's the thing. So I got a little culinary on it because occasionally I do cook uh, whilst usually drinking. Uh, and so I created a tomato water. Now, I don't know if you've uh-huh. ever made a tomato water. Yeah. Surprisingly. Because so, I occasionally cook. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I go, I go all like the whole lot. A stem of uh, Campari. <laughs> oh, another brand placement. How clever! <laughs> uh, a stem of Campari tomatoes um, on the stem. So I want that vegetal nature coming through um, into hot boiling water. Blanch them um, for about five minutes, and then just leave them to steep. Tiny little bit of salt and a tiny little bit of sugar. Um, leave them to steep all the way through. Then I blend the shit out of those tomatoes. And then double strain it through a two strain, two filter process um, to get a beautiful, still slightly cloudy, mm-hmm. um, but kind of gentle, gentle kind of ruby red. So you're not allergic to it at the, when it's like that? Like, no, because by, you're that allergic stage, to the seeds? by that stage it's been cooked. There's an enzyme uh-huh. in the flesh, which I'm allergic to, but cooking or curing, okay. um, it changes the enzyme nature and then I can eat it fine. So I'm fine with like a Tomato pasta sauce, sauce, a passata, anything like that, mm-hmm. even a salsa if the salsa has been cured for the right amount of time with the right balance of acid. Um, anyway, that tomato water, then I reduce it one time because I do want still the strength and then I clarify it because apparently I'm a nerd. Um, and that This is not the breakfast time Bloody Mary, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is not the Bloody Mary that you kind of stumblingly pour together out of the fridge with a stick of celery and just kind of try and reclaim your life on a Sunday morning. Uh, I've actually never done that because, again, Bloody Mary is But um, I do love a tomato, peach, and feta salad with mint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was my inspiration for my Bloody Momoa cocktail. Tomato water, carbonated, peach liqueur, fresh mint, and a little parmesan snap on top. Oh, So you just want the, um, the umami yeah. of the parmesan, the freshness of the mint to give you that green, bright kind of vegetal nature. Mm-hmm. But tomato and peach, when blended to the same level of subtlety and with a little bit of sparkle, absolutely delicious. Did you, did you put his vodka in there? Oh, yeah, the vodka went in there too. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I thought you were missing the main component to win this competition. <laughs> <laughs> you completely forgot <laughs> the sponsor's no, product. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so the Maile vodka right. in there okay. and then topped with the tomato water. The Phew! Peach. Sorry, I, I thought we weren't going to meet Jason Momoa with this oh, entry. Oh, no, no, I'm definitely, I'm, yeah, uh, I'm definitely uh, going to brunch with Jason nice. in the new year. That'll okay. be great. All I'll right. tell you all about it. Yeah, you need a plus one. Um. Okay, yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer not to have the competition, to be honest. But (laughs) anyway, that's what I've been eating and drinking uh, because, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And who doesn't love a pickle with a bloody mamoa? So so just back to the pickles. Yes. Do you you pickle your own pickles or are you a a connoisseur of of other pickles? I'd like to think that I'm both. Okay. So I (laughs) – I have, I'll share this photo, I'll share this photo on our uh, socials later, but I do in fact have, if you open my fridge, you will just see a um, 
a gamut of pickle jars um, with various pickle brines, different types of pickles, and lots of pickle juice that's being stored because, you know, you can reuse that pickle mm-hmm. brine time and time again. So I tend to do that. Um, I just try and make sure not to confuse it with the master stock that's also <laughs> in the pack. <laughs> it's a bit like the um, egg whites and the lime juice in the freezer that you don't nibble. Mm. Lime juice does not make a good pavlova defrosted. I found that no. out a few times. <laughs> That's yeah. why there's always a label maker in my kitchen. Oh, my goodness. Or a Sharpie. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, so I do make my own pickles. There is a reason why I actually uh, – so the the highest quantity, apart from spinach, um, the highest quantity of vegetable plant currently growing in my garden is cucumbers. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. I actually – I love a good pickle, but this household, there are two things that – oh, there's three actually that the other half does not eat. One is tomatoes. Fresh tomatoes. Right. So a struggle in the summertime because there's nothing like a fresh tomato, just picks. I mean, I'm allergic to tomatoes, I but I still love a fresh tomato. No. I mean, the countless times we have to order things with no tomato, and he can, he's not allergic. He can pull it out. The other one is does not like the pickle. Does mm. not like – there's another one, orders a burger, no tomato, no pickles. Love a good pickle. Do you know what he'd love, though? He would a love tomato my, pickle. He'd love my skillet meatloaf. <laughs> He probably would actually. <laughs> he probably would, and that would would grate me like big time. And I um, because I bought home these are really amazing um pickled onion makers in um Tauranga called Nana Duns, and mm. they make I'm saying I'm going to put this out there the best pickled onions ever. Oh, they're still they're just the right balance of everything crunch, sweetness, sourness, everything, and they make a damn fine caramelized onion. Oh, I don't know if they call it a marmalade, but, you know. But anyway, their pickled onions are the best. And I remember coming back home with really excited about these pickled onions and my husband just turning up his nose because they were pickled. And nothing beats a pickled onion on a nice, sharp cheddar cracker, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, have you ever made pickled onions, right? So, like, the faff of getting those tiny oh, I'm little not, onions? I'm not, I'm not making them. Uh, my friend Natalie, she's a bit of a forager, lives up in the far north, um, she takes her onion weed. Oh, I've done that. And pickles the bulbs. I have done that. I did a few a few years ago. My garden is riddled with onion weed, and the problem is it's mixed in with the bulbs that I want. So one year I went and thought, I'm getting rid of this onion weed, and I dug out all what I thought was onion weed, and they were actually freesias. <laughs> So then, how did they taste? Spring popped up, no <laughs> freesias, but still onion weed. So, so the next year, I figured if you can't beat them, eat them. Mm. And yeah, so pickle the if you can pickle the bulbs, it's a good time to pull them up actually when the bulbs are when they died down. Well, see, I actually have about a I don't know about a thousand of them. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <Right now. laughs> I just feel very virtuous eating pickled onion weed. Pickled weed. Like, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It gives weed a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, weed is only something you don't want. So if you actually like it that much, you could actually start growing them, couldn't you? Yeah. Then I can be like, I, I, it's not that I haven't weeded, it's that I'm growing. Yeah. That's food. what that oxalis, I just like the flowers in my salad. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> is it time for some spicy sauce? I think so. I've got spicy sauce okay. this week. Uh, it started with. Um, can I say a bit of a slop, right? Which is cottage cheese is, it's sloppy. You know, you just kind of, it's not like sour cream where that's like a, 
that's a blob. You know, it's a it's a it's a splodge. It has form. It has sh- no like cottage cheese pouring it out of a tub. It's just a. It's also tasteless. Ah, oh, so tasteless because. Here in New Zealand, we actually, well, we just make, you know, we sell kind of proper cottage cheese. Whereas if you're in like places like the States or even in parts of Europe, they load that stuff full of sodium. So it at least is kind of like salty. (laughs) But here, no, it is. You're right. It's very bland. But I don't know if you've noticed, but cottage cheese is having a comeback. And I wrote an article on this for the feed just recently called Influenza. Is the diet of influencers actually making us sick? I posit that it is, um, or at least it has the potential to. But if there's one thing I don't want to see any more of, it's like, okay, I mean, there's a place for cottage cheese, sure, but I mean, come on. On my thighs. (laughs) That's where it is. It's going to stay too, I'm telling you. I, you know, from people going, oh, look, wow, I've just, I've just rediscovered cottage cheese. How great is it? Great for what? But the thing is with cottage cheese, I think, I mean, you know, anyone who's been around a few cycles of the diet trends mm-hmm. realizes that the only way cottage cheese is good is when you put it with a whole lot of other things. So like and my biggest one with cottage cheese would be like when they brought out the crusket which is mm-hmm. a tasteless, crunchy thing yeah. that you need to put something on top of to make it tasty. So then you would put cottage cheese on it, still haven't done that. All we've done is got crunch and, and Now we've soft, got crunch you know? and creamy. So now we know. need something else to go on top of it. Sort of Cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> but come on. I mean, the only cr- crust get butter and Vegemite. You get away with it. Well, yeah, but then I saw the other day somebody put Marmite underneath the cottage cheese to give it flavor, and I thought this Mm. is – I look, but you know what it is? It's taking me back to the very first time that I ever went on a diet, and I hate to say I was 16 years old, and it was Weight Watchers, and that was the approved snack, was a Cruscat Marmite, half a teaspoon, by the way, half a teaspoon. For one Cruscat? just scraped across uh, and you know two tablespoons of cottage cheese and I and I just think I'm fine I, I actually have a couple of really great uses for cottage cheese it is high protein that's why people like it because you can go oh it's high protein and it doesn't have that much sodium and it doesn't have that much fat and it's you know also doesn't have any fiber or flavor but cool whatever um, there are a couple of recipes that I use cottage cheese for if you blend cottage cheese uh, with a little bit of Greek yogurt, it is a great substitute for reduced cream if you want to make uh, uh, onion dip. Yeah, it's fantastic because it doesn't need to sit up in the fridge. Yeah, right. It's like oh, bam, quick, done, um, and you don't have to feel you know quite so bad about whatever. But it's the virtue, it's the virtue seeking of trying to replace perfectly fine foods with cottage cheese to somehow make them healthier. That is just diet culture dressed up as diet culture. Like it's just diet diet culture dressed up as being some as being health, as being wellness. And I'm over it. I'm just done with it. What's the formula? I'm not um, about the protein that you're supposed to have. Okay. So this is so nutri- and he- here's my thing. If you want good nutritional advice, 
go to a nutritionist and go to a certified nutritionist. Go to go to somebody who has done the work, who has spent the time. Do not go to somebody who is spending their time on TikTok unless they're a certified nutritionist. So Claire Turnbull, I love on Instagram, social media, really great actual certified nutritionist advice, which is awesome. It's the, it's the influencers who are out there saying, well, the formula is, and there are a couple of different formulas, depending on which source you go to, someone will tell you that you need to eat um, 0.75 grams of protein per uh, kilo of body weight that you hold. Some people will tell you that it's actually 1.2 grams per kilo. Now, if you start to do those calculations and you extrapolate them out, and it's based on what your body burns based on the weight that you carry, right? So some of those recommendations now, if you follow that formula, uh uh-huh, right? Oh, and if you want to talk about trying to get in grams of protein a day, like very quickly you start to go, well, how on earth do I fit that all in, right? Which is where cottage cheese makes a comeback because it's flavorless and formless. So you can add it to just about anything and a regular serve of 100 grams is going to give you 15 grams of protein. But the other, the other, the, my biggest problem with diets, other than I can't follow one, present state improves that point is <laughs> you follow the good food diet is no but my problem with diets is that they are very um so so if you're going to take that formula with the protein for an example the first thing people are going to do which is why we're in the state that we're in is they're going to find a shortcut to get there right and the shortcut is going to be a protein powder yep. and so you're no longer eating real food mm. so i that's where i would kind of be on the on the fence or in the cottage cheese army versus oh here's a big tub of highly processed whey pea or whatever protein whatever that's not food people Mm -hmm. if you actually want to go on a more healthy diet and before you go see a registered nutritionist take all the shit out of your diet take every go open your open your cupboards and look at everything that you cook out of a packet if it's not real food if it has to come with the chemical numbers and Mm -hmm. e's this and x is that and it's got ingredients in it that you don't know you can't see what that actually is don't eat it yeah Look, and and there's a lot, I think that there's a lot to be said. One of the best pieces of nutritional advice I ever got was eat your protein. So yes, you know, it's, and so there is a bunch of, uh, there's a bunch of information out there. You can read more about it in my article at the feed that does say women, particularly over the age of like 35, should really be eating like uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 28 to 30 grams of protein for breakfast to start your day. I don't even have breakfast. To... (laughs) I'm already on the back burner. Wow, don't even get me started What's on how... What's a teaspoon of cream in my coffee count? <laughs> don't even get me started on how uh, our hormonal cycles influence how and if and when we should be intermittent fasting. Like, And let's not talk about also the fact that, you know, we all fast every day, usually between dinner and sleeping. breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so Just go is... to bed early. It's how you extend your fast period. I'm telling you, it works a treat. Or sleep in. But, yeah. you know, uh, the, this is one of the big trends that's out there at the moment in terms of nutritional information is to try and get that 28 or 30 grams of protein. Let me just break down what that is for you. That's that's two eggs and half a cup of cottage cheese. 
I mean, so the what eggs the Benny heck? is actually looking quite attractive now. Well, apart from the fat content. <laughs> But you're right, right? Two, What's two poached what, eggs two and poached salmon. Eggs and some bacon or some salmon. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah. make sure make sure to put the spinach in there. That's yeah. what I, you know, the, yeah. Anyway, so that's my, I just think, especially as we start to lead into the festive season, right, there's two messages that start to happen. Yay, festive, be merry, be merry. And then also, watch what you eat and substitute this for that and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I think people always ask me, and I'm not a nutritionist in any way and, and things, but people always ask me what I think about certain things and and it always comes back to the same advice every time do you recognize the ingredient as an actual food Mm, mm -hmm. so like the debate has raged for the last 10 years about healthy oils and non-healthy oils the coconut oil versus the olive oil versus the you know what have you and i and i again you know there is such a lobby of um big businesses wanting you to eat certain oils and not other oils and what have you. And that's kind of been going on for a lot longer than we realized. But there's a minus simply is, do, is that product that you're eating oily? Mm. So for a good example is canola. Is it oily? Do we even know what canola is? So yellow flour that a lot of people are highly allergic to has to go through a lot of um, machinery and manufacturing for it to be an oil. Yeah. So not my favourite oil, people. No. A rice bran. What is rice bran? It's the byproduct of rice. It's a it's a you know great. We're using food waste up, but it's not oily. Sunflower. Put your finger in a sunflower and it's oily. Yeah. You know, peanuts, you know they're oily. Yeah. Avocados, you know they're oily. Olives, you know they're oily. That's it. That's where you've got to start thinking about things. Is it naturally that way? Or has some chemist had to create it Mm. to be that way? Mm -hmm. And as soon as a chemist or a manufacturer with some high pressure, high whatever heat has had to get involved – Maybe it's not to be eaten that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. Uh, Speaking of things to be eaten. Christmas. You know it's coming. You know. It's knocking on the door. Christmas, that's what we do is we eat, isn't it? It's just an excuse to eat at different places all the time. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's some, you know, you factor in different circumstances and whatever. It's, you know, times are certainly tough this Christmas, but ultimately – you know, I think 90% of the time when we think about Christmas, we are thinking about food. I think it's a really good thing. I mean, I always think about, you know, Christmases and birthdays and what have you. And what you, when you, when you, I always say, when you look back on your childhood, say birthdays or Christmas, what do you remember? You don't remember what Santa gave you when you were eight. But you probably do remember what the family traditions were to eat. Mm-hmm. And same with birthdays. You probably don't remember what, you know, you got for your 10-year-old. But you remember the 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 experience and the traditions. And often that's around food, isn't it? Yeah. Like we yeah. used to we, – we still do, even though we're all grown-ass adults. When it's your birthday, you get to pick what's – What's you're going to have for dinner? Yeah. And I'm lucky enough to have my birthday smack bang before Christmas, <laughs> 21st of December. Thank you very much. <laughs> and daughter's the 22nd of December. Yeah. And we always request 
sausages, mm-hmm. which the whole family rolls their eyes at and goes, really, sausages for Chris for her birthday, and mum's marshmallow pudding, which she used to make for us every year growing up. Oh, my gosh. And everyone groans. Everyone loves it. That's uh, that's outrageous. Yeah. I don't even. Well, I I I'm gonna. It's basically I'll, ambrosia. Yeah, I was gonna she, say she's tweaked it over the years. Okay, but it was just called marshmallow pudding back then, and it used to be a tin of boysenberries, marshmallows, and cream. It's yeah, it's got okay, yogurt and all sorts of other flaff in it now because you know. Yeah. Well, because you know, let's substitute <laughs> we for the grew. healthy things. Didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so if ambrosia's on the twenty first and the twenty second for the birthdays, what's on the Christmas table? Well, Christmas table is, again, it's kind of a mesh of family traditions, isn't it? Like Christmases are all about families joining and celebrating together. And so my mother um, came from a sheep farm, so they always used to have roast lamb. Mm -hmm. And my father, um, their tradition was always pork. Mm -hmm. So when they married, it became lamb and pork. Mm -hmm. So we have two cuts of meat. Yes, Very problematic when I'm in the kitchen because I like the slow – cooked lamb right and then the pork you know so you can't yes. do it in the same oven much to right. my father's disgust so yeah the barbecue has to get pulled in and <laughs> all sorts of things and lots of regiments and, and what is, have you is on. anyone else allowed in the kitchen while you're in the kitchen no on there's christmas a day? rule on christmas day <laughs> that the kitchen must be tidy by christmas eve yeah to Vicky's standard. and then by the time when i put my penny on no one passed the tiles Right, okay, that's it. This yeah. whole can I help when no. you don't really want to help, you just want to come in and pick oh, and okay. give yeah. me your advice can just, you know. Yeah, okay. Tidy you've it got away. a firm, You've got a firm handle on yeah. the kitchen domain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my um, brother married a Scottish girl mm-hmm. and suddenly mum went, well, well, they have turkey. And I said, like, we can't have three meats. No. So Ooh. now we have... Lamb, pork, and turkey. All I'm saying is no one else is allowed to marry into the family with (laughs) (laughs) another tradition. Luckily, no vegetarians or vegans as of yet. Well, so we're we we've we've progressed this year in our family. Um, We're one vegetarian down. Uh, My sister didn't kill them. No, 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 no. She technically technically she was pescatarian, um, but she's given up. She's given up vegetarianism. Uh, Her husband's still holding on though. We're like, "Mm, okay, win him over this Mm. Christmas. So, so my solution to that in the past couple of years has just been a side of salmon because, be honest, I actually really enjoy that anyway. And look, this might be sacrilegious, but I'm not necessarily a huge fan of ham. But ham has always been a given in our house because uh, the other sisters tend to have. Well, you know, before she, 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 there was a time she wasn't vegetarian, then she was vegetarian, now she's not, we'll see what happens. But there's usually an argument about two things and how big they need to be at Christmas. Um, How big does the Christmas tree need to be? As big as possible is the answer. Um, And then how big should the ham be? And the. It's got to fit in the oven. That's the rule, isn't it? Uh, no, that's not the deciding factor. The oh. deciding factor is there have to be enough for everybody to take a big ham oh. of hunk, uh, a big hunk of ham away <laughs> on their holidays. Yeah, I'll yeah, because that's hunk, what but. we do, we we always have ham in the Rimlich mm-hmm. household, but it's never eaten on Christmas Day. It's always 
taken it's kind of like a boxing day or the day after depending on leftovers cooked and then eaten for the next week or two yeah exactly yeah yeah but see i'm just like yeah cool whatever i'm not like a ham sandwich doesn't really doesn't really do that much for me so i'm not too i'm not too worried about it anyway uh we are going to speak uh with the delightful hillary from freedom farms about where that christmas ham comes from yeah because it's thoroughly interesting isn't it they they I mean, let's face it, the ham only comes from a certain couple of places on a pig. Mm, what do you do with the rest of it? Well, yeah. And mm. do we make and do we grow enough of those in New Zealand? And why is it always ham and never pork belly on Christmas Day? These are the big questions. Oh. We should ask Hillary. So it is, of course, uh, Christmas season coming up. And when it comes to the source of truth about putting Christmas ham on the table, we thought there's no better place to go than to Freedom Farm. So, Hilary, thanks so much for your time and joining us on the episode today. Um, hope that you're doing well. Are you a fan of ham on the table for Christmas? I sure am. Yep. Ham has been the rock star on my Christmas table since I was a very little girl. So um, all the way back to Grandma and Granddad's house, I remember when we were little the ham was the main event, um, and that's remained the case the whole way through. Um, as it is, I think, for most New Zealanders, I think New Zealand Pork did some work last year around, you know, how people's preferences are changing around the Christmas table, um, and ham is still very much front and centre for most of our families. Um, alongside a little bit more salmon, a little bit more salmon's creeping in. Um, the old mega lamb is, I think, always going to be a bit of a favourite too. Um, but, yeah, but definitely ham is, is still front and centre. Still no room for turkey, eh? No. (laughs) Turkey is such an interesting thing because it's such an internationally, you know, it's such a big deal. Um, And I think that there is a lot of influence that's come from sort of looking at some of those, you know, Bon Appetit. I've delighted in watching Bon Appetit and all of the iterations of what you can do to make turkey interesting. Or taste. Um, But, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But, I mean, it's a pretty pretty extensive exercise to turn that into something that you're like excited about especially you know in the middle of a, a summer Christmas right you don't want to be slaving over a turkey for three hours on Christmas morning so. yeah and ham's yeah. more versatile isn't it for leftovers we were just saying that about you know we, we eat ham for two weeks after Christmas versus absolutely Christmas. and a lot of people I talk to actually prep their ham prior to Christmas so that on Christmas day there is no ham prep They've glazed it, it's ready to go, and then they're outside and they're slicing up slices and just chucking them on the barbecue or or those sorts of things have become a lot more normal too. So the the I've right. just I'm prepping it beforehand. I've just had a revelation. Miss <laughs> 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 Systems over never, here, I would have thought you would have had yours prepped away. <laughs> uh I am I'm shooketh. I'm shook as. I'm gonna have to go back to the drawing board for my whole Christmas day preparation now. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Key question, Hilary, is what's your favourite glaze for the hand? Oh, I am a sucker for the old marmalade glaze. That's my go-to. Um, the jar of the, it's the Anatho breakfast marmalade, which they make with New Zealand grapefruit and lemons. Um, it's my favourite um, sort of base ingredient. I play pretty fast and loose in terms of a recipe each year. It gets a yeah. little bit more chaotic. But, um, yeah, favourite at the moment is half a jar of the marmalade and then you make yourself a Negroni and you don't put any ice in the Negroni and you pour half the Negroni into the ham glaze and you drink the other half with <laughs> ice. Um, and then just add like a little bit of honey just to get the consistency right and you're good to go. So, oh, okay. We might have to put that recipe up online. <laughs> uh, look, hey, uh, there's always room for Negroni at the Christmas table as far as I'm concerned. So, absolutely. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's a Christmas flavor too. Like it's hitting all of those right Christmas notes. I think so. So I guess the real question, though, beyond how we glaze our hams, is where are our hams coming from? Yeah, and I think it's a really um, important question um, for New Zealanders, as ham is clearly our favorite Christmas time treat. And is is the ham that we put on our Christmas table what we think it is? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, by and large, it's not. Although I think that's shifting a little bit over the last few years. People have gotten a little bit more savvy around thinking around where their food comes from. Um, COVID, I think, played a really big part in that. We definitely saw through COVID people starting to be like, you know, either we saw supply chains for what's coming in start to wobble a little bit and people got a little bit aware of, of those things. And that wasn't just with pork. That was across the entire food system. Um and we've obviously had country of origin labelling come in as well um, that sort of kicked into effect in early 2022 um, for fresh product and then frozen product and just in May just gone. So that's now part of people's sort of awareness too around, you know, they can pick up a packet of something and look at it. Unfortunately, the way country of origin labelling has unfolded for pork hasn't added sort of this magical clarity that, yeah. that everyone sort of was hoping for. Um just primarily because of the logistics around how pork suppliers manage when it's an import product. Um, a lot of the time it's coming from a lot of different places. And so we've ended up um, sort of accepting a list of up to 16 countries on the back and, and tiny print on the back of your of your packet of, of ham or bacon or whatever. Um, and, and that in itself, I, I you know, we, we fought for so long for country of origin labelling and it was sort of pitched as this, it was magically going to change things. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it doesn't change much because the production systems in those countries that we're importing from are just as versatile as, or, or broad as the production systems that we have here in New Zealand. So knowing if your pork is coming from Poland or Spain or even New Zealand doesn't actually give you the clarity that you need to sort of really dig into what, what has happened um, in the pig's life. Um, as it's made its way to your table. So that's, yeah, so I think we're in a really funny spot at the moment where we've got this growing awareness from consumers around, you know, they're thinking about more things. What are the welfare things? What are the environmental impacts of things? Where does this sit in terms of climate change and emissions? And how far has it travelled to get to my table? And what are the ingredients that have been put in it, you know, as it's been processed? So the questions are becoming bigger, more prevalent, people are growing awareness um but the answers i don't think are becoming perhaps as clear as we need them to be to make good choices so that's where freedom farms kind of live yeah i guess pork is one of those hard ones though for new zealanders because um when it comes to the majority of our other proteins that we eat like our beef our lamb and our chicken it's all grown yeah isn't it absolutely yeah. outlier on that in that respect and so people tend to think with that with that country of origin labeling immediately if it's grown in new, or raised in new zealand it's okay but if it's raised overseas it's not but yeah. that's the can of worms the other thing i think is i think i think as a consumer that and i've been you know duped and i feel like i've been duped is that because of the because the brand names are so entrenched as Kiwi brands, you just assume the pork is New Zealand pork. Absolutely, yeah. 
So, and, and even with country of origin labelling, we haven't seen any change to the, the made in New Zealand claim because that remains, you know, for all intents and purposes, true um, that, that we are bringing in pork and it is processed into bacon in New Zealand and therefore is made in New Zealand. Um, and that, I think, for a lot of consumers creates a lot of, I guess, confusion, distrust, um, all of those things that creep in um, as well to... And and unfortunately, not a problem that is um, that is only something that the pork industry experiences. Oh, is absolutely it, not. It, it's it, across it, so many aspects of food production yeah. and beverage yeah. production. A hundred percent. Yeah, looking at you know the way the wheat industry and, and grain operates in New Zealand and the lack of access to locally grown grain for our bread producers is, yeah. you know, another per- perfect example of we would just assume right, like <laughs> we grow a lot of grain around Canterbury. Um, of course, that would go into our, you know, our loaf of bread, but that's that's seldom the case. So, so um, from so tell us uh, from Freedom Farms' perspective, what do what sort of um, things do you think? Um, how you raise your pork and how you think that's different from most people's or the not yeah, most. well, so important. I mean, it, yeah. So in terms of the things that we value. Um, we work with a group of seven farms that are all around South Canterbury. Um, they are all operating systems where the sows live outdoors in maternity paddocks um, and have their own individual little straw-lined huts where they give birth to their piglets um, in that system. Um, it's a very cute little, they've got their own little little house. Um, so no crates? And then, no crates, no, no crates, no cages. So the, the sows give birth, she feeds her piglets, um, she's got her own individual supply of food and water um, at, at her little hut. Um, and then once the piglets are weaned, they go off into deep straw shelters, which are big sort of open-sided sheds um, with about 400 millimetres of straw in the bottom of them. Down one end, the pigs have got feeding um, so that they've, you know, they've got their feed stations, on-demand food, clean water. Um, and then just naturally at the opposite end of the, from the food, they create their own dunging area. Um, and the straw that's in those deep straw shelters are an incredibly important part of the system. Um, it does several things. It's a great source of enrichment for the pigs. So they get to do all of their natural piggy things, rooting around in the straw and chewing on it, manipulating it with their mouths, doing all of those things that just naturally come to them. Um, but it also soaks up all of the manure that is created in those deep straw, shel- deep straw shelters. So that's a really important component of sustainable pig farming is that ensuring that all of the manure is captured um, mm-hmm. so that it's not going directly onto the soil. So pigs are, are prolific producers of manure. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. Um, I mean, some indoor commercial pig farms are producing as much manure as Palmerston North on a, bu- on a busy day. So, it's, you know, like it's, it's, a, it's a very big system um, to manage all of the waste output. And so for our farmers, that means that they scrape out all of the straw that has soaked up the manure that goes onto concrete composting pads and it's all composted down and then reused um, on, on the soil, but in a sustainable way so that it's not leaching into the waterways and it's not creating all of those sort of nitrogen loading issues that can happen when it's just all outdoors. So, I mean, without without necessarily understanding all of the economics yep. going into that, but... Does that is there actually room for growth in that sort of sustainable pig farming? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're still seeing a lot of intensive indoor production of pork in New Zealand. Um, and we're going through a process at the moment with the government. There's been some updates to the Code of Welfare um, that's been driven by, you know, probably 10 years of, of back and forth between the animal welfare scientists and the advocates and the government to try and sort of find a, a safe place to sort of grow the industry. Um, we're now seeing, you know, the, the farrowing crate ban is, is likely to come through, although with the change of government, the timeline on that is, is likely to be a little bit different than perhaps it was 12 months ago. Um, but, but that is the direction of travel, is that this is what a sustainable pork production industry um, could look like. So the argument, though, isn't it, that if back to where we were talking about, about other practices in other countries, yeah. that New Zealand makes our animal welfare and farming practices really strict and obviously a lot more expensive to produce that pork but we have this open gate absolutely from other countries our pork farmers will just say it's not worth it and all we'll get in new zealand is will be pork from other countries grown at produced in a way that we wouldn't accept that is the risk yeah that is that is definitely the risk um I mean, I, I feel like it would be uh, bore of me not to mention that other countries are having exactly the same conversations around what the future of welfare looks like and what the future of the environmental impact of pig farming looks like. So there's been the massive in the cage age um, push in the European Union, which is where a lot of our pork comes from. They're working on a much longer time frame than us. So so we're, we're well ahead of a lot of those international producers in terms of our welfare conversation. Um, but we're all pointing in the same direction. Inevitably, this is where pig farming has to go across the whole world. There are there are lots of little things, though, that are tricky points in that. You know, we've still got 60 to 70 percent of pigs coming out of the United States are, are physically castrated. That's not allowed in our farms, but is still practiced on some farms in New Zealand. But there are definitely more humane ways of doing that. Sour crates are another example. So they're banned in New Zealand. Um, as, as part of our animal welfare legislation, they were banned uh, quite a few years ago, um, but still quite widespread in, in parts of the European Union. And that's, you know, we know that that's not a sustainable position from a welfare perspective, um, but some countries still do employ them. And then there are, I mean, there's just, there's a whole range of different factors that, you know, come into play when you're making decisions around what good, good farming practices are. Um, and they're all over the place. Um, and, and even, I mean, the complexity that's now coming in is that we're starting to see things like California is pushing ahead very, very quickly with their pork producers in terms of what good what good practices are, whereas North Carolina on the other side of the country is not. You know, they've, they've got a very different set of, of things that they're focusing on, which is lowering the cost of production so that they can produce more pork cheaply to feed a market that can't afford to pay for a more expensive yeah. pork. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's no magical way of of you know telling someone that, that this is a good thing or a bad thing or this is a good country or a bad country because it's it's a lot more tangled up than that. Mm. Um, Just out of interest, do we export any pork? Last time I checked we were re-exporting more pork that we import than we were exporting of wait, wait we go and pork. So well, what? <laughs> so, so that means four that, logs to China and then sending it back to us after they've done exactly. it. It's like very, very Australia to get it shipped back as flour. <laughs> yeah, exactly the same. But this is the globalized world we live in. So, 
Um, it's also the globalised world in which our beef and lamb farmers do quite well most of the time. So it's and that's where pig farming has has always had this sort of weird, I guess, lack of space in New Zealanders thinking is that we're so focused on our exports, our dairy exports, our cheese, our beef and lamb, our seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, high quality seafood going overseas and earning a lot of money for those export industries. Pork doesn't have that space. And so it's kind of become maligned, I guess, a little bit now thinking around how we value it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a space. If we lead the way with those animal welfare um, rules with our pork instead of us dis- our pork um, industry disappearing because all we do is import it maybe that would open up a better export market for us because we could be the gold standard of pork around the world for animals yeah we could be but it would be a very very niche industry so I think when you consider just the sheer volume of pork that is eaten in some countries and the, the volume of production which is just you know, we're just a blip um, in, in the way that countries like Brazil and, and China especially are producing pork. It's it's just, I mean, it's eye-watering. Um, China have re- recently moved into a system where they have a seven-storey building for intensive indoor production because stacking them up is is more economically viable than, than having farms. Um, is it possible that we look at the future whereby the ethical choice becomes that we just simply don't. don't eat pork because we can't afford to produce it sustainably here. Uh, there's no export market for us to compete in and we don't want to morally participate in that. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm thinking yeah. ahead, right? Is that? Yeah, is, that's, that's worst case scenario. That is, um, that is, yeah. that is a very scary possibility. Um, but New Zealanders still value pork. And I think this is the tension, you know, we're still, seeing all of the market results come back saying New Zealanders are eating on average 19 kilos of pork every year. That's an awful lot of sausages that that we're talking about removing from someone's diet. A lot of ham sandwiches, a lot of sausage rolls. um, Pork isn't after chicken. Pigs are one of the most efficient converters mm. of of feed into protein. You know, like yeah. so when you're talking about sustainability, you always got to talk about lots of different variations over that. You know, one's an animal um, welfare one and those sorts of things. But actually, mm. talk about sustainability of feeding people. Mm-hmm. Pork is way up there in a really sustainable um, meat, mm. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It. I mean, it's it's a wonderful you know opportunity too to to feed people well because it can be lean the mm-hmm. fat that come out of pork are, are high in all of the good acids that we want people to get high in b vitamins high in iron so it ticks a lot of boxes in that regard the caveat that i have to put on that is that often pork can go one of two ways it can be lean and it can be this you know this beautiful clean protein um but it can also be a treat food so when we're talking about, you know, our streaky bacons and things, those yeah. are treat foods. They, they they were never really intended to be, you know, an everyday food. Um, Can I, yeah. I mean, I, this might be an embarrassing confession or not, but I just don't eat that much bacon anymore. It is something that has absolutely become a, tr- like it's a, it's a treat food for me, but it's like, I still wouldn't. Yeah. I think I think that what I like about the cured meat part of pork is that 
as people who probably eat less and less meat, mm. you can take two rashes of bacon. So you're probably talking 50 grams of meat yeah. and put it into something that a, a, a meat eater suddenly doesn't think they're missing out on the meat when they're really yeah. such a minimal amount. So yeah. where like, it's not an everyday food or what it is is you're not sitting down and eating a couple of rashes of bacon every day, but mm. actually or salami, or a chorizo, or, you know, you only need a little bit of those things what I was to make it. I've swapped my bacon intake for chorizo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All day, every day. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So that's where yeah. I think when people say to me, you know, what, what if you went vegetarian, what food would you miss? Actually, mm. probably would be pork because of its versatility mm. and that you don't yeah. actually need a lot of it mm. Mm. To, be satiated in that feeling of you've had that tsunami mm. meat sort of yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean bringing it down to the real practicalities in the in the in the meantime while globally and nationally we try and get better or find you know more uh, complete solutions what should Kiwis be looking for when they go out to buy their Christmas ham this year what are some of the 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 top signs that they can pay attention to? So I want to start this by acknowledging that 600,000 New Zealanders are using the food bank every week at the moment. And so those people, whatever they need, right? Like if you're in a situation where you just have to put food in your belly, like all bets are off, whatever you need to do. So let's put that bit aside first and acknowledge that they exist because I get very uncomfortable having this conversation without acknowledging that this is a luxury for a lot of people. Yeah. So then... For the people who are in a position where they can actually start saying, what are, what are the things that I'm thinking about? What are the values that I'm applying to the way I buy meat? Um, knowing where it comes from is my number one. Um, so whether in that is knowing that it comes from, you know, my group of seven farmers who are Freedom Farms farmers, so that if you buy our product, you know that those are the seven people that it comes from. That's, that's a starting point. If it's not that, then looking for a pig gear label. So all of the commercially produced pork in New Zealand comes with a pig gear label on it. If it's not branded specifically to a, a particular company, then you step down as that pig gear accreditation. And that's the industry body that does some sort of surveillance around what's happening on those farms, ensuring that they're up to scratch and meeting the minimum requirements. Beyond that, I mean, there are opportunities to go to farmers markets. So there are some pork producers who are just going direct to market through a farmer's market system. And in those situations, you can have a conversation directly with your farmer. Um, that's an incredible opportunity if you're in a position and well-resourced enough to do that. Check out Otago Farmer's Market, the Parnell Farmer's Market in Auckland. Those sort of people, you know, you can actually start to get into the nitty-gritty because you've got the person in front of you who's raised those pigs, so you've got that. Um, beyond that, I would just be looking at you know, what what clarity do you get from country of origin? Um, having a look at the back of the label, you know, what are the claims that have been made on it? Um, but, yeah, there's there's not a huge amount of clarity in that. But at least, you know, at least look, at least just explore that a little bit. Um, and ask your supermarkets too. Ask your supermarkets if you could, you know, if you walk into the supermarket, you go to the deli department, just say to them, could you point me in the direction of the locally found hand and see what they say? Um, because they also need to understand that there is a little bit of consumer pressure for this. Um, and and often, especially at the moment, they're getting a bit tangled up in 
cheap, you know, cheap is, is number one in their thinking at the moment. Um, and they need to understand that there is a, a diversity in the consumers um, looking for things other than just low cost. So I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to end because that's a discussion that we've been having about businesses that do the right thing about about um, actually consumers helping them along that way and yeah. actually seeing that, that their efforts are actually well worth it. So um, huge yeah. congratulations to Freedom Farms for being one of those businesses that put those efforts front and centre, I think. Uh, well, that was some porky goodness. Um, here's my question. Are you, are you a um, ham and mustard? Or um, like ham and, you know, jelly, chutney kind of a person? Oh, to be honest, I don't like hot ham. I only like it the next day. Or... Oh, I'm just talking about in a sandwich. Yeah, well, but I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm a true co- I like it with lots of butter. But I think you'll find that with me. Everything's better with lots of butter. <laughs> it's all bit, bit not, of necessarily, bit of not necessarily burnt butter. But, um, yeah, I just like it fresh bread, a decent spread of butter and ham. That's it. Okay. There we go. Yeah. See, I can't go past the uh, nice slather of whole grain mustard. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Uh, okay. What do you need to know this week? The summer edition of Nourish of is course. out. Yeah. Everything you need for your summer reading in the Waikato and Bay of Plenty. And if you're outside those regions, you can read them online. Um, so, yeah, 7th of December, Nourish comes out. Pretty exciting. It's always a good, a good feeling, especially at this time of the year. It means we can all go on holiday. <laughs>